Welcome to TopCast, episode 42, and somewhat ironically, I'll be speaking about quality audio. And yet this episode was made in rather a hurry, and so I do apologize for the quality of the audio. Enjoy. I recently wrote an article for my website titled An Autobiography of Wealth. The purpose of the article was to respond to a kind of economic pessimism where people are saying of the Western world that the middle classes aren't improving their lot very much over recent years, that real wage growth hasn't increased. So I'm going to read my article. This is going to serve as an episode of TopCast, and I might intersperse a few additional comments along the way. Basically, my own summary of this article is that in the Western world, it has been claimed that so-called economic stagnation has not seen the middle classes benefit from the great technological boom in terms of real wage growth. This, it is said, goes some way to explaining the rise of populist politicians and economic protectionism. I use a personal anecdote in what follows to illustrate a refutation of these ideas and conclude we are, all of us, more wealthy than the economists, politicians and pessimists want us to believe. So let me get straight into the main part of the article. Now, there are links that I provide, references in other words, in the article which is on my website. Stagnation is a term used in economics to denote a period of near zero economic growth. This is to be contrasted with inflation, which is high growth, or more precisely, price increases, and deflation, which is negative growth in an economy, or price decreases. Now, it has been argued in very many places that much of the Western world, but especially in the United States, there has been an extended period of stagnation. Emblematic of this idea is the work of economist Tyler Cohen, whose 2011 mini-book or pamphlet titled The Great Stagnation argues that the causes of growth in America are largely spent, and we are now in a period where there has been little real growth in wages for some decades and will be for some decades to come. My aim here and now is not as a critique especially of the work of that economist, or even that particular pamphlet, it's worth reading, but rather the broader idea that things are now not much better than they were a decade or more ago, as measured against the index of real wage growth. Or the thesis that is contained in an article, which I linked to in my own article, by the economist Amanda Novello, where she wrote about the economic recovery that happened after the 2008 financial crisis. What she wrote was, quote, Digging deeper exposes that middle and low-income workers and their families in the United States have not reaped their share of the benefits of the apparent recovery, the benefits that such a recovery should produce for all, and not only for the few. Data shows that, in fact, it's only wealthier households and larger corporations that have gained noticeably since the recession ended a decade ago. This is because long-developing trends of inequality have proven impervious to the decade's economic growth. End quote. Is it true that only wealthier households and larger corporations have experienced benefits over the last decade? Economists will say numbers speak for themselves. Look at real wage growth, for example. Real wage growth is a measure of how much wages have grown as compared to the rise in the cost of living, or broadly, the average cost of other things in life. Real wage growth is supposed to be a proxy for a quantitative measure of one's standard of living. 
So if there has been no real wage growth, especially for the middle classes, is it true that one standard of living has not improved? This is all a very abstract way of talking about people's actual lived experience, their work, their lives, their day-to-day -day activities, including, in small part, their spending habits. In particular, we must consider actual individuals, not groups of people. Some people seem to think that if those on minimum wage have, as a group, not seen real wage growth, that this is a concern. But which person on minimum wage 10 or 20 years ago is still there, in that same role? Don't people change jobs and, in part, because they no longer wish to be on the wage that they were, look for something different, something better, to improve their lot? Don't people take on other responsibilities, like study, in order to get a better job? A more preferable job? A more fun job? Economists are quick to define into existence something like real wage growth and claim that this indicates some deep truth about the lives of individual people, rather than bring to bear various other metrics that might stand in contrast to this. I want instead to simply consider a narrow aspect of my own life and ask the question, am I no better off? Obviously, a single data point cannot refute a trend, but I am doing this for the pessimists who are complaining their lives are no better off. Those who at 30, 40 or 50 complain things are not much better for them now than when they were 20. I hope that any reader or listener who persists with me now simply compares what I say about my life with theirs. I note that my story parallels that of all of my family and friends. What follows is a true story, and you may be able to predict where I'm going with it all. My father was, and remains, what has become known as an audiophile. These days, the suffix file is added to just about anything one likes to indicate a passion for. A number file, a mathematician. A retrophile is someone who loves the cultures of the past. A bibliophile, someone who likes books. You get the picture. Anyways, before the term really gained cachet, my father was an audiophile of the kind that today is rarer than one might think. Or at least I might think. He used to obsess during the early stages of CD audio about whether the CD was recorded in DDD, Triple D, or some lower quality like AAD. The A stood for acoustic, and the D stood for digital, and the three letters in a row, they told you something about each stage of the recording process. So DDD was clearly digital recording at all stages, so of the highest quality. I knew of no one else who cared about this sort of thing. But today, I totally get it. So often I walk along the street to hear a person blaring music for themselves from an iPhone or some other smartphone. I mean, public music played from an iPhone speaker. Don't get me wrong, the latest iPhones have reasonable speakers given their size, but outdoors on noisy streets? Putting aside what I consider the discourtesy to fellow pedestrians and others to have their senses assailed by music they may not like, following them down to the train station, there are very, very cheap alternatives that solve the problems of faster drain on your battery, annoyance to your fellow travellers, and chief among them, to my mind, the quality of the sound. Any half-decent, and cheaper by the week, set of earbuds bought at the local grocery store, wired or unwired, completely outclasses the inbuilt phone speakers. If one can afford a smartphone, one can afford a pair of cheap, reasonably high-quality earbuds. Whatever the case, I have inherited, okay, learned, this preference from my father. People who can watch the television, listening to the sound from the television's inbuilt speakers, rather than ensuring it always runs through their separate amplifier and high-quality speaker system instead, it's a mystery to me.
People content to remain using the included white wired headphones with their iPhone, I don't get it. In fact, I don't understand Apple's AirPods, period. Given the price, why is their sound quality so low? Why aren't they noise cancelling or at least noise isolating? Earbuds half the price can do a far better job. But I digress. When I was a child, like under 10, I really wanted a good set of private speakers I could tune into a radio, or even better, play cassettes. I wanted to emulate my dad, of course, and be something like a connoisseur of sound. The first bit of tech I got in this regard was a little mono radio, and I was so proud of it. Within a year, I guess for a Christmas present, I was bought a portable stereo cassette player with a radio attached. It was called a Ghetto Blaster. It was this big thing with two big stereo speakers and you could play cassettes on it and you could play with the equalizer. To me, it was simply amazing. It was stereo I could carry around and play cassettes on. I'm not sure I ever carried it far though. It ran on something like six D-sized batteries, making it quite heavy. Next, I guess I found this in a catalog, a pair of over-the-head headphones that had an aerial and inbuilt radio. So you could use it to tune into the radio and listen to whatever was playing on the radio at that time. It had an analog tuner, a little dial, and so it was hard sometimes to tune into the radio just exactly. But hey, I could walk around listening to the latest hits and not annoy anyone else. Now these didn't predate the Sony Walkman. That had been around for almost a decade already. But the Walkman was well over $100, and in our family, back in the 80s, $100 may as well have been $1,000. So I wasn't getting one of those for Christmas just yet. But the problems with this new bit of kit that I did have, this over-the-head set of headphones, this portable radio, was that, of course, you could only listen to whatever the radio stations happened to be playing at the time. But I wanted to play my own music, my own cassettes. Back in those days, the technique was to wait by the radio until your favourite song came on or until it was being back-announced. They were telling you what was coming up next. And if you heard the song begin to play, you hit record. And this way you could make up your own mixed tape. I wished I could play my various mixed tapes on some portable audio device. Alongside my love of portable audio, I'd begun to develop a love of hiking. I lived in a part of Sydney surrounded by bushland, forest in other words, and in other parts near my house, it was just quiet suburban streets. I can imagine few greater pleasures than walking, jogging, running, riding my bike, and listening to music. The problem was, of course, the batteries never lasted long with these things. A few hours at most, and back in the day, you really did stand out as odd wearing such a contraption on your head. They simply were not that popular, especially among people my age. Nevertheless, I do recall dreaming of the possibility that I might be able to actually record my own favourite music rather than have to listen to only what the radio was playing at any particular time. This was something a Walkman with inbuilt cassette would allow me to do. But again, they are for rich people, not children from the suburbs, until I guess sometimes towards the end of the 80s. By then they were cheaper. I guess they were Chinese knockoffs. And so finally I was able to get a portable cassette radio. Now I really was cooking because I could record my own music from the radio on my stereo system no doubt in violation of some copyright law at the time, onto a cassette and carry it with me. Now this was the height of technology and personal agency. I think it was in 1993, I was able to ask for my first digital, actual Sony branded Walkman. I say digital because it had an LCD readout. The absolutely remarkable thing about this particular model that I did get was that it could store in memory your favorite radio stations. 
So instead of having a dial, you would just hit a button and it would go straight to the radio station that you want, tuned in precisely. I was able to record from CD onto cassette all of my favourite music and some comedy shows I enjoyed. The first CD player I had arrived in our home in about 1988, and so I was building a library of cassettes, recording from CD to cassette, to carry around with me. The only problem with this procedure was that I would often hear a song on the radio and have no way to record it on the fly. I would either have to wait until it came on the radio when I got home, sitting by the radio, or buy the CD and then transfer it to cassette. I dreamed of the capacity for a Walkman to record onto cassette whatever happened to be playing on it at the time. But this, walk, this first Walkman served me well throughout the final years of school. When I left school, I went to university, full time, by which I mean five days a week for seven or eight hours a day. Lectures commenced at 9am and finished at 4pm, except on Wednesdays when it was 5pm. Uni was located a considerable 90 minute journey away using public transport, which I always did, I never drove, and after university on some days of the week, especially Thursday, I was a security guard at the largest shopping mall in Sydney, and also on weekends. This left me very little free time, except travel time, which was around three or more hours a day. But a part-time job did make me more wealthy than most of my friends, at least in those early years, because while they went to university as well, they didn't tend to work jobs part-time as I did to pay their own way and save a little bit of money. Or where they did work part-time jobs, they chose something different, like working in a fast food restaurant or at a grocery store. A security guard required just a little bit of training, and there were additional hazards, so there was a monetary reward for that kind of thing, for making that particular choice over some other kind of minimum wage position. Nevertheless, a security guard has never been a well-paid position. Back in the late 90s, a weekday shift would be around 13 Australian dollars per hour. Compare this to McDonald's, which paid something closer to $10 per hour. In both cases, the evening and weekend rates were more. On Sunday, I even got double time. So then it was, in the late 90s, with this part-time job, I was able to upgrade my older, play-only Sony Walkman for one that could indeed record. Not only did it have a record function, it had so many other features, like a digital equaliser and bass boost. The great advantage now was that my journeys to and from work and to and from university could be accompanied by my favourite radio shows, even if they were on whilst I was busy at work or busy in lectures because I was recording them for my travel time. I absolutely loved train bus journeys with the music of my choice or radio show of my choice while reading or studying my university notes, rather more often reading some popular science book I'd bought. I seem to have reached the absolute zenith of what I've wanted from portable radio. Although I did imagine the possibility of having a recordable CD. Whatever the case, this Walkman that I had also accompanied me on long patrols at the shopping centre late at night, always at low volume, sometimes with one earpiece out, so I could still hear if anyone was breaking into anything and smashing glass. That only ever happened once, and the alarm system would go off quite frequently and loud enough anyway, and that would always drown out whatever you were pumping into your ears through your earbuds. But as the 90s rolled into the 2000s, and I was still merely a security guard on minimum wage in an unskilled job, I was nevertheless able to afford almost as much technology and creature comforts as my imagination allowed me. I was able to build my own PC, more than one in fact, from buying the best motherboard, CPU, RAM, hard drive and so on that I could find, and I could afford among the best portable audio. Somewhere in the 80s, the Sony Discman came out. It was a portable CD player, but it was never popular because it was never really portable. You bumped it, 
and the machine skipped, making listening and walking simultaneously, for example, an intolerable experience. But in around 1999-2000, I did buy one of the first CD Walkmans which came standard with a RAM buffer, which meant if you did bump it, it was able to store about 30 seconds worth of audio on solid state memory rather than skip across the disc. But actually, my top of the line Sony Walkman then, the cassette version, has sound quality that easily matched the CD Discman, because the earbud earphones really had increased in quality. One of my best friends, who was also in a low-wage job, even was able to buy me a top-of-the-line Walkman for my birthday one particular year. Now that Walkman that I got from him was set apart by the quality of its earbuds as well as its excellent record feature and pseudo-digital fast-forward and rewind. It could tell where songs stopped and started again, making your favourites on the cassette easier to find. All of this made my life absolutely wonderful because, as I said, I loved walking jogging, running, riding my bike around, and listening to music at the same time. And the more I loved walking and hiking, the more I wanted to listen to music and other audio, like my favourite radio shows I had recorded. But the problem was, one had to carry additional cassettes, and each cassette was usually only 90 minutes long. For long hikes, that really just did not do. And during this time, I had saved up enough money to travel a little bit. At one point, I went to Zimbabwe, Africa, and safari, and that included lengthy hikes, as well as a long plane trips. I also managed to go to South America for some months, hiking the Inca Trail in Peru, if you know what that is. That's a three-night-long trial at high altitude through the Andes. I think I carried six cassettes with me for that journey. There are only so many times you can hear your favourite songs over and over again. If only cassettes were smaller, or could store more songs. Now, in truth, a device called the Sony Minidisc Player had actually been out since 1992, so Wikipedia tells me, but that was entirely well outside my budget. It cost thousands of dollars. It wasn't until 2002 that I bought one, and what an astonishing device it was. It had come down in price to just a few hundred. I still have it. It still works because I still have my collection of mini discs that went with it, and I have radio shows from back at that time and the music that I used to listen to back at that time. Of course, I've transferred a lot of that onto the solid state devices that I have now as well. But the mini disc player, although incremental progress in some ways, it was a revolution in my life. The cassettes had improved in quality markedly over the decade, but now the option of a small optical disc, much smaller than a cassette, could store many hours of audio. Indeed, one could choose the sampling rate to record. The highest selection meant your mini-disc could store about 70 minutes worth of audio, while the lowest quality meant about four times that amount. And at this time, there were the first beginnings of science, philosophy, and other radio shows, the, the, the beginnings of podcasts that I could download and record straight from the radio, or from the internet in low quality and keep while I could transfer my CD audio music collection all to the mini disc, all stored on generic branded discs that were very cheap and getting cheaper all the time because there was a lot of competition in the market. And as I say, at this time, this was one of the first devices that could actually be hooked up to a computer via USB and download songs and other audio. That, I guess, deserves the term revolutionary. And throughout this time, I changed jobs, going from being a security guard to what was called a science communicator with the university. That position was paid a lot less, but that was an exchange I was happy to make. As the confrontation, which one engages in as a security guard, physical and otherwise, had become something I felt I had outgrown. After a few years as a science communicator and living on a much lower income stream, I decided in the early 2000s that I would become a teacher. 
Parts of the education system in Australia at that time permitted graduates with just a bachelor's degree to work as casual teachers in schools. Things have since changed. You need to have not only a bachelor's degree, but also a, a separate teaching degree, usually a, a, a master's degree as well. But at that time, I was able to take on the role of being a casual or supply teacher, filling in for teachers who were sick. So, so that's what I did while I completed my Bachelor of Teaching, which would entitle me to work in schools on a permanent basis for substantially more money. Now, this casual teaching role brought with it a real increase in my financial position, money like I had never experienced before and I didn't even know what to do with. I probably should have invested more, but at that time I was having too much fun traveling. But once more, during this period, I was working, then studying, working, then studying. Nevertheless, I was able to save more. I paid my way through and completed a couple more degrees and used these as tickets to travel for even longer periods. I'd already been to Africa and South America and to numerous places within Australia. Tasmania, for example, was and remains my favourite. I agree with Edmund Hillary, the first European, or first human, to climb Mount Everest who described Tasmania as being the greatest hiking country on earth. Anyway, after saving up from those jobs, I moved to London and my minidisc player went with me as it could download music from Napster, and if you know what that is, that ages you, and radio shows from Australia to keep at bay the homesickness as early versions of podcasts began to become popular. But of course, the minidisc player still had the problem that the finiteness of the discs meant carrying quite a large number of them if one did not want to get repetitive with their audio. Solid state MP3 devices certainly existed, but the early ones never had much memory, two gigabytes or something like that. But they were better for jogging, I suppose. Minidiscs were still liable to skipping. But those early solid state MP3 players did suggest to me that the move to fully solid state for everything was inevitable. As I have continued to work more and study less, I've migrated fully to an Apple device, because I can afford it. At first, it was the iPod Nano, which was amazing. Great for the gym and for jogging, because it could store thousands of songs and podcasts in a device one barely noticed they were even carrying, and which never skipped. But the first iPhone, for me, was also truly revolutionary, because now, here was a device effectively with unlimited storage. The cloud meant that radio shows were there for download, so long as you could find a Wi-Fi or 3G signal. Especially for exercising and jogging, this was a true game changer. Suddenly, everything on the internet was accessible from my pocket for the first time, and streaming became a thing. The finiteness of the memory was barely a factor anymore, and now we come to today. And on my wrist is an Apple Watch as small as an iPod Nano, with so many of the features of an iPhone, and in my ears, wireless earbuds. This is the stuff of dreams for my 10-year-old self, or my 20-year-old self, or my 30-year-old self. If I had remained a security guard at the shopping mall all these years, I guess I would not be paid much more now in real wages than I was then. Indeed, I know, because I can look up what the job pays here in Australia. And given the rise in living costs, indeed it's not like security guard is a more attractive job now than it was then. Why should it be? Jobs like those, in the main, are not meant to be kept for life, unless one really wants to get into the security industry, say, and start their own security company. That could certainly be a reasonable ambition. But had I stayed there, in that shopping mall, wearing that uniform, I imagine I would have been promoted to supervisor, then manager, and so forth up the corporate section of the centre. Interestingly enough, the 
rank system in a large shopping center like that is quite a complex affair. The security officer answers to their supervisor who answers to a manager who answers to someone called an operations manager who then answers to someone called the center manager and so on it goes. Whatever the case, no one stays in an entry-level job like security officer forever. That's common sense. Unless they try really hard not to get promoted or find some other job more attractive, people do get promoted. They do gain experience and so are moved into higher positions of greater responsibility or sideways into a position where the ladder is easier to climb. Or they do a course for some hours a week and retrain to take on a different, by their lights better, role that plays more or is more interesting, more fun, less hazardous and so on. But let's say, for argument's sake, I never did any of that and I remained a security guard in precisely the same position. Is the lack of increase in income for security guards relative to the cost of living some sign of stagnation, as it is often suggested to be? People say things like, real wages have not increased, as if people are stuck in the same job, forced to make the same choice day after day. Whatever the case, say I did make the choice to stay in that job and not made the choice to spend the rest of my time studying whenever I had the chance, when I wasn't listening to recorded radio shows. Would it be fair to say I would have been no better off now compared to then? That because my real wage growth had been near zero, that I was someone being left behind? No, no way, not by a long shot. Because today, even on that same wage, I could have afforded an Apple Watch and wireless earbuds, which is exactly what I have now. And the pinnacle of portable audio technology for me is so far as I'm concerned, the Apple Watch I have comes to me on a plan via my mobile provider. It only cost me $20 a month to pay off. I could have afforded that back then as a security guard easily. And yes, my data on top of that costs a little bit more, which I can share across multiple devices. But the point is the very best technology and access to the world's information and music library and almost unimaginable technology to me 20 years ago is available even to some of the least wealthy people in modern Western societies, and soon to everyone else too. Wealth is not about how much money you have or the cash you can pull out of your bank account. It might include that, but it also includes all the many things that money can buy and which you already have. My Apple Watch, if I could travel back 20 years, I imagine would have been regarded as one of the most astonishing devices in existence, making me one of the most wealthy people on the planet by the following measure. The technology on my wrist would have been bought by, for example, Bill Gates or some other billionaire for many billions of dollars if I could have convinced them what it truly was. If you've seen the movies, it would have been like the chip from the first Terminator, which if you recall, wasn't destroyed when Arnold's evil Terminator character was killed. That last remaining chip was used by a technology company in Terminator 2 to go in directions they never could have imagined. It was basically alien technology. So too my Apple Watch placed in the year 2000, or let's say 1990. The Apple Watch really does confer wealth onto you far beyond what its price would suggest. If you own one, you are more wealthy than anyone living in 1990. In 1990, there was no way to get any book in the world fed wirelessly into your ears, read to you by a machine, or even the author themselves. And when these books are read to you, you're learning the knowledge that could potentially improve your lot very easily. There was no way to call overseas from your wrist. 
people are rather pessimistic about the idea that there has been so much astonishing progress and an increase in wealth over the recent years. They point to statistics like wages have not increased while the cost of homes has. Some use this to explain the appeal of particular political movements. The same house today in some town costs 10 times more than what it did some years ago, while the wage for the same job has only increased by a factor of two in the same area. Doesn't this mean society is going backwards in some way? Now, there may be some legitimate concerns here. There may be government regulations making the cost of housing greater in some places and more or less appealing in others. But none of this is really about how wealthy a singular individual is. Or if it is, that is merely one metric. How big is the particular house that a particular income earner in a particular area can purchase now? The security guard that I was from 1996 to around the year 2000, no doubt was right to think he was near the bottom of the Australian wealth pecking order. But today, were I in the same job, being paid the minimum wage today, I would nevertheless be far, far more wealthy. Not because my income relative to other jobs wouldn't have been greater, it wouldn't have been, and shouldn't be expected to be but rather that the purchasing power of that same amount of money is unimaginably greater than what it was in 2000. Namely, it can purchase technology absolutely unthought of in that time and which makes any security guard today in Australia on minimum wage the equal of the most wealthy people on the planet by the metric that they can buy the best of a whole bunch of things. Now, I personally don't know what Elon Musk wears on his wrist in terms of smart technology, but I know it can't be much better than what I do, if at all. And the quality of his earbuds and audio he experiences each day, I can bet it's not much better than mine. In many ways, I am just as wealthy as Musk, on a number of metrics, even though I have but a fraction of his income. Yes, he can build rockets, but I don't want to build rockets. I quite like doing with my time precisely what I do with my time, much of the time. If I had been told in 2000 all the features of an Apple Watch and then asked to guess what it cost, I do not know exactly what I might have said. But given the cost of the best Walkmans at the time were well over $1,000 and the best earbuds, which were all wired of course, some hundreds, I guess I could have thought maybe $5,000 would have been quite a bargain for an Apple Watch. And back then I could not have afforded the best quality Walkman with all the best features. But now, the Apple Watch I have does precisely what the best smart wearable tech can do for the wealthiest. Everyone now is far, far more wealthy according to that standard. They can afford personal technology that is not super outclassed by the super wealthy who have much more income. Wages have all gone up in the sense we can all buy more now than we ever could before because there's more stuff to be purchased, more innovation and creation and technology to make our lives easier, more interesting, and more mobile. And by more mobile, I mean this in both senses, both more portable and more able to move you into other jobs or other interests, into more fun situations, things that you're more interested in, positions where you would rather be. Because we can put on our wrists, you don't even need an Apple Watch, there's lots of wearable tech far less expensive with almost all the same features. We can put on our wrists these devices that can feed into our ears Lessons that can lead us down lanes that in decades gone by would have required us to enroll in university courses at great expense. Now, it's so much easier, so much more fun, and also liberating. And this is just to talk about technology. 
I can say precisely the same about healthcare, the cures that are available out there that weren't available decades ago, cars and their safety features, home smart devices, books are now easier to read and listen to and cheaper. Education is actually, despite what people keep saying, cheaper than it ever has been. Sure, if you want to get a credential, perhaps you're going to have to go into debt, terrible debt, as far as I can tell, reading about what's going on in the United States and various other places. But many places now, Google's one of them, are saying you don't need the expensive credential. You can get a cheaper credential, one that they're providing, and get a better paid position. So is there stagnation, stagflation, recession, cause for pessimism? Whatever the technical definitions from economics behind these terms, it should not cause one to think it has any direct bearing on their own individual life, unless they lose their job, let's say. Those terms are never about individuals, but groups. Individuals are mobile and move between jobs, and thus income bands. And meanwhile, as they do, the innovation continues despite what the naysayers say, because whatever the gross metrics happen to be, they tend never to account for all the other ways life has improved. Individual wealth has increased and our personal purchasing power so much greater. Those who claim you're worse off or that things have not improved are usually trying to sell you something, something political rather much of the time. The truth is rather different. Wealth continues to increase. You can do far more for far less cost. David Deutsch says in the beginning of infinity that wealth is the repertoire of physical transformations that one is capable of causing. Now just consider all the ways in which your life has been transformed by technology and ideas, regardless of your income having increased or not, and all the ways in which you can now, if you choose, make choices to transform your own life through, for example, education at near zero cost by downloading anything you like, the knowledge, so you can make things better for yourself. By any measure, almost all of us are far more wealthy now than we ever have been before. If you've enjoyed this or found it at all valuable, you might like to support me on Patreon. Just search for Brett Hall on Patreon or Topcast. See you next time.